Welcome, you are joining with us at Calvary Chapel Valdosta. Pastor Deshaun Van Cleve will continue his sermon series in Colossians, resuming in chapter 1, verses 21 through 29. Today's sermon is entitled, Perceiving the Value of Christ. Here is the word of the Lord. All right, but let's turn over to the book of Colossians uh, this morning as we are making our way through this book. Colossians chapter 1, we will be studying verse 21 uh, through 29 uh, this morning and picking up our study, uh, making progress through the book of Colossians. So before uh, we go any further, as we do and our custom is, let us stand together. We'll give honor to God's word as we read the passage. See what the Spirit of the Lord wants to say to us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And you that were sometime or once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, of which I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church." Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Thank you for these words this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us understanding, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here, that you would speak to us. And Lord, we don't want, Lord, just knowledge, because we know knowledge, it puffs up, Lord, but we desire uh, the, the understanding, the flow down to our feet, that we might be people that put these things into practice. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move upon us and give us the ability to do uh, such a thing. Uh, so we thank you, Lord, as we sit at your feet. Let us be fulfilled and satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we have been saying, our theme of Colossians, our study in Colossians, is the Christian's greatest need. And that greatest need is the cornerstone. It is Jesus Christ himself. Last week, Paul made the case to show how Jesus Christ is the center of everything. How we need to be concentrating on him. He is the principle. He presented the principle to us as we went through Colossians chapter 1. Last week, verses 14 through 20. But this week, we're going to transition. And as we follow along with his thoughts and his frame of mind, then we need to understand something just as much as the Colossians needed to understand something. That we have to perceive, we need to be perceiving the value of three things. Right? We need to perceive the value of Christ for us, Christ in us, and Christ through us perceiving the value of Christ for us, Christ in us, and Christ through us. We will perceive the value of Christ for us in verses 21 to 23, and then we'll pick up with Christ in us through 24 to 27, and lastly, Christ for us, or, or through us, I should say, in verse 28 and 29. But perceiving the value. We live in a culture where there are a lot of material things. What value do we put 
on knowing the Savior, on knowing Jesus Christ? What value do we place on being in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it a high value? Is it of great worth? I like how Spurgeon said a long time ago, he says, if you feel the disease, you will value the physician. If you know your own emptiness, you will prize Christ's fullness. If you feel the disease, if you know where you came from, if you know what you are, and what you're made of, and what you're prone to, then you will value the physician. I think we live in a day and time where we don't necessarily value our relationship with Christ as much as we should. And we don't necessarily value the work that Christ is that Christ has done for us. And we don't always value the very fact that Christ is in us. I think we just take it as, you know, a given. It's a, it's a basic thing, a default, and we don't really marvel at that. But back then, in the first century, this was something to marvel about. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul writing this to the Colossian believers, who would have been the majority Gentile believers, they they wouldn't have been Jewish. There may have been some Jews there, but most of them would have been Gentile. That means of other ethnicities. And they wouldn't necessarily value and understand the fact that Christ would be in them. But this is something that is very, very significant. And it's significant to us today as believers in Jesus Christ. It should be. And also Him uh, working through us and, and moving through us to accomplish His purposes. These are things that we have to value we must understand the value of it because then we'll appreciate it and we'll say take nothing from me lord i remember a long time ago i was listening to a message by john corson if you ever listen to john if you've never listened to john corson i encourage you to listen to pastor john corson he is such a blessing and i, I wonder like how much time is this guy spending in the word it's not high-minded stuff it's just straight to the heart things and he mentioned that Hey, look, if, if anything is ever taken away from me, you could, you could take away the ministry, you could take away the position, you could take away all the material things that I have, but he said, don't take away my, my devotions with you, Lord. I, I need those. Those are more precious to me than anything. I'm even reminded here in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul was at the... Uh, at, during his last time, he was in prison there at Rome and he was writing to Timothy. And he's asking Timothy to bring all these things to him. And he's giving him a rundown of the people that are no longer with him. And he tells him something most important. He says, the cloak in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring it with you. And the books, especially the parchments. That would be the Word of God. That would be the Scriptures, especially the parchments. I need these things. They have great value to me. Now the question is to you, because we don't live in a culture like some of our brothers and sisters live in, where you are persecuted, if you even dare to believe in Jesus Christ, you're not ostracized, and you're not kicked out, and you're not threatened, to come to Christ. Because we live in that type of culture, how much do you value this relationship with Christ? How much do you value the worth of it? How much do you value Christ being in you and what he has done for you? How much do you value that? There are many people in other cultures, they value this above their lives. In fact, you know, several weeks ago, uh, Brad, Timmy, and I went to a, a, a men's one day conference slash retreat and we heard from a man named Wes Bentley and he's over in Africa and uh, the Lord is using him uh, to train up uh, these guys are soldiers but they are the chaplaincy of of um, I can't remember you remember the country South Sudan they're the chaplaincy of South Sudan and they're going out on the front lines to share the gospel but they're going out in battle and these guys are going out there and they are making an oath saying that Jesus Christ is worth more than my life. And I understand that I might die tomorrow. And that is the highest, that is the highest reward that I could ever have. Because then I'll be home with the Lord. And these guys are dying. It seems like almost every day. I mean, 
It's a lot of death. He went down and showed us a video of many people that are sacrificing their lives. You know, the gospel, this relationship with Jesus is worth so much to these guys. And they don't have all the stuff that we have in the edifices, the houses, and the cars. They don't have all that stuff. But when they have Christ, it's everything to them. And they live, they live for it, and they show the worth of it. So I think we need to perceive this. And just as much as Paul is saying this to the Colossians, you need to understand how blessed you are in having this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he picks up here in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 21, and he says, And you that were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Paul says that you were once shut out from the fellowship and intimacy of God. You see, the Jews, the salvation was going to come through the Jewish people. Those were God's chosen people, the Jews. But something happened with the Jews, that they fell out and they weren't believing, most of them, the majority of them. But God had a, a larger plan, a much more vast plan, that he wanted to save everyone because sin is not prejudice. Sin doesn't care who you are. Sin is inherent and innate in every single person that is born. It is in our DNA since Genesis chapter 3. And so God had a plan to save us, to redeem us, to bring us back to himself. And so he tells the, the Gentile believers here, which would fit most of us, although sometimes I think I got some Jewish roots, but nevertheless. But it says, uh, it says in verse 21, it says, And you that were once alienated and enemies, you were shut out. You were enemies of the cross. You know, it tells us in the book of James chapter 4 that to be a friend with the world is to be an enemy of God. And there are still many people that are enemies of the Lord today and you're in opposition. And he tells them here that you were once shut out. You, you didn't have fellowship. You were outside of the covenant and the covenant that God made with Abraham and his people. You were enemies in your mind. And it says, by wicked works. And this is how it was manifesting itself. You were enemies, not position. But he says, yet now, he has reconciled you, Christ. That means he has brought you back. He has brought you again to himself. What does this speak of here? And this shows us here that this is none other than uh, grace. That's what it means for Christ to be for us. It's for Jesus Christ to give us his grace. Uh, we know a very basic meaning of grace is God's unmerited favor. It's something that you received that you did not earn. You, you could do nothing to earn this. It's just God's goodness to you. It's Him being for you. It's best described that way, that God is for you. That's grace. God is for you. <clears throat> Even though you're not, you're not for Him. Even though there was a time in your life that you weren't for Him. Your God is still for you. That is grace. It is God's unmerited favor. And this is what he is saying here is that this is grace. God has brought you again to himself. It wasn't by anything that you did. You didn't do this. You didn't, you weren't a good person. You weren't, you know, pristine in the spiritual things. And no, it was God's grace. He reconciled you to himself. He brought you near. And this is what he's telling the Colossian believers that God brought you near. He says, in the body of his flesh through death, that is through the death on the cross, and he says, to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. This is what Christ being for us does for us. It's, it's actively working within us. When Christ is for you, he's actively working within you to change you and to restore you. This is why we have to concentrate and perceive and understand. The blessedness of this is that when Christ is for you, he's actively working to restore you, to change you. He says here, through his cross, he wants to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable. 
He's looking to restore you relationally to God. That's, that would be the holiness there, because God is holy. And so all that approach him must be holy. So he made the way for you to now be holy, even though you've done nothing except, except <laughs> receive him. He's done it all for you. He has opened the way to restore a relationship between you and God. He says unblameable. That word unblameable there could mean without blemish. It goes back, it's a sacrificial type of word. When you had a sacrifice in the Old Testament, it wasn't missing an ear or missing a leg or something like that. It was, it was a perfect sacrifice. He said he made you unblameable, without blemish, is what he's trying to say. God has restored you, not only relationally, but spiritually. There's no blemish in you spiritually. You can now be received by God. And lastly, even morally, God has redeemed you because he says irreprovable. That means without a cause, without a case, no one has an accusation against you. You have been accepted. It tells us in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, that Joshua, the high priest, was there standing before the Lord. Then it says in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, that he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan was also standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said, <clears throat> excuse me, to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with a change of garment. This right here shows that Satan was standing before the Lord with Joshua there accusing him because his clothes were filthy that represented <clears throat> his righteousness, his own life. It was filthy before God. This is what it means to be irreprovable. There no longer can be an accusation against you. God said, I have taken away your iniquity. I have changed your garments. And so there is no accusations now against us. This is what Christ does for us. He restores us relationally, spiritually, and morally to God. And now we can almost be in the state that he wanted us to be from the, the very beginning with Adam. But this is all through Jesus Christ. Now, though we're still sinners and we're still struggling with this will within us to want to disobey God, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at us, he sees what the Son has done. And he accepts you. And he accepts me. Though I feel very, very unworthy because I'm a man of unclean lips, as Isaiah said, yet he still receives me, and he still receives you. This is what it means for Christ to be for you. Look at all the things that he is doing. This is what he's trying to explain to the Colossian believers, that Christ has done all these things for you. So even though there might be some, some Jews that come that believe in Judaism, and they're going to try to make you do things to earn something from God, you need to understand that Christ has done all these things for you. He has made you holy. He has made you without blemish. And he has made you without any kind of accusation. He has presented you to be righteous. And that's always a real blessing. We have to remember that, gang, because there, there's going to be many things that try to get us to make ourselves right with God. If you just take a person that hasn't been walking with the Lord, let's say, for instance, they've been lukewarm. They've been compromising some. The natural inclination is, you need to do something to earn something from God. Well, I need to get back in church. Because if I get back in church, God will, God will change these things in my life. That goes back to a workspace salvation. Now, you do need to repent if you're in that state. But it's not about earning something from God. It's just receiving something from God. But I love this part here in verse 23. Because always there's a balance. Christ has done all these things for us, and he has been so rich to us. Yet there is still a balance. Herein lies the balance and also our struggle. 
the balance in our struggle. He says, if, a conditional statement there, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. He says, if you continue, if you are grounded, if you are settled and not moved away, that is the balance. Yes, Christ has done all these things for us, but gang, you also have a part. You see, God is not going to go past our will and violate our will. You also have a part. You also have to respond. And so you have to do things. Also, you, 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 you're not doing anything to earn something, but you have to continue. You have to persevere. You have to be grounded. That word there, grounded, can be translated having a fixed foundation. You can't be shaky. You can't be waffling or vacillating. You have to be firmly fixed with a foundation. He says settled. A good translation of that word settled in the Greek. You have to be sitting. Not moved, but sitting in that belief. In what Christ has done for you. Sitting in the goodness of God. You have to continue in it. That is your part. His part is that he has done it all for you. Your part is you, you got to put some feet to faith. You got to put faith into action. You can't just accept it and receive it and just say, I'm a Christian. And I know you got to be growing in Christ. And gang, this right here is always the separation of mature believers and immature believers. <clears throat> is that a mature believer is one that remains. An immature believer is one that's always moving. Is one that's always moving around. They can't stay put. They can't remain in something. They're always jumping around. That's why, listen, when you're doing, your, when you're having a personal time with the Lord, a personal devotion with God, you need to be faithful and consistent with one thing, not jumping all around. You, you never get a full context and an understanding of something by jumping all around. Even the secular society knows that. You go take a class in college, you know, some literature class. They're not jumping to the end of the book, then the middle of the book, then they go to the beginning of the book, back to the middle of the book. You won't have a full context and knowledge of what you're going over. You start from the beginning, you work your way to the end, and you remain in it. They don't start a book, even in a secular world, in school and education, and then just say, well, we're not going to do this book anymore. I'm going to just go to this book. You'll be the most confused student ever. What makes it different with Jesus Christ? And so many people treat the Lord this way. They're always jumping and moving constantly, not sitting and listening to what the Spirit of the Lord has to say to you in your life. Not remaining in place and in position so He can speak to you and communicate to you. We're so ready to jump and move. In fact, the world tells us that this right here is healthy for you. If you've been at a job for three years, you've been there too long. you got to be moving. you always got to be thinking. That's, that's not maturity. Maturity is, is remaining, is being settled, firmly fixed, not being shaken. And when we studied the book of Ephesians some months ago, we went over Ephesians chapter 4, and it tells us in verse 14 that we are to no longer be children or infants is what the scripture is trying to say we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness for which they lie in wait to deceive he says that immature believers they're moving all over the place they're tossed to and fro what you're believing here, what you're believing there, what you're doing here, what you're doing there. There's no remaining. You're just moving. Look, we even look at it from a, a growth standpoint in our children. We're like, as they mature, they're able to sit still longer. As they are immature, it's very hard. They, we call them wiggly willies. They're always moving. They can't keep still. They haven't matured to the point yet of being still for a second. But this is what we need even in Christ. We can't be wiggly willies in Christ Jesus. 
always moving, always moving about. Look at this example of maturity here. I want you to see Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It tells us right after Stephen was stoned, it says that Saul in Acts 8.1 was consenting to his death. He was pleased with it. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But notice it says, except the apostles. They weren't going anywhere. They were fixed. They were settled. They remained. And this is this is a measure of maturity. They didn't run for their lives too. Let's go. Grab all the equipment. We got to get out of here. Get the donkeys. They're, they're, they're taking us out. No, they remained. They were confident in what God called them to do. They were confident in who God called them to be, that they did not have to move and run. And gang, we got to make sure that this is not in our, our makeup as a, as a Christian. All these things that Christ has done for us should cause us to be immovable. I like how Paul the Apostle also writing to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, he's writing to the Corinthians and he tells them in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, that means to sit, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You have to be firmly persistent. You need to be remaining settled, firm. And a mature believer is going to be firm and settled. He's not going to be all over the place. She's not going to be all over the place, tossed to and fro. And so we have to concentrate on this. Christ has done so much for us and it's enough to cause us to be firmly fixed in position. What a great word to share uh, to those that have first come to Jesus Christ. What a great truth to impart if you had never seen someone ever in your life. As we surmise, Paul has never been to Colossae and never saw these believers. That he would think about it and tell them that, that the most important thing for you is not to be moving all over the place and eventually moving away from Christ. It's to be firmly planted, remaining. And we have to go against the grain, gang. We, we, ha we have to swim upstream with this principle today because the world's going to tell us if you're not moving, you're stagnant. You're not moving. You No. We have to go back and say, I'm not moving because the Lord hasn't told me to move yet. Will you go? I'll go. When you move, I'll move. It tells us that the Israelites, they were under the cloud by day and a fire by night. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. And when the cloud rose up and moved, they moved. They didn't move other than the Lord moving first. We have to learn that principle and swim upstream. So this is what Paul is trying to communicate, <coughs> excuse me, to the Colossian believers and showing them that you need to perceive the value of Christ being for you. And this should work something in you, a steadfastness. Now he goes on in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, right at the end, he says, of which I, Paul, am made a minister. He said, I've been made a minister of this very hope of the gospel. The word minister there is not what we gather in our mind to be minister. You know, here in the South, it is used very loosely. And um, for those that are of position, yeah, I'm getting ready to be ordained as a minister. Really? So what, what color mop are you going to use? Because that's really what the word means. It means an attendant, a servant. It doesn't mean somebody with a real high position in a church. It means an attendant, a servant. And this is what Paul said. I have been made a servant, diakonos, that is the Greek word, an attendant of Christ Jesus. I have been put into the ministry for his service. And so a minister in the broad sense, in his most real sense, 
as a servant. And Paul said, I have been made a servant who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Remember, Paul was in prison during this time. Acts chapter 28. He was imprisoned at Rome. And while he was there, he was sharing the gospel, but he was a prisoner. He was chained. And more specifically, this would be the time, even as we had read there in the book of Philippians, where he may have been moved into the barracks of the Praetorium. And so he was, it was imminent, uh, the, his case coming before the magistrate and then making a decision on him. But he was a prisoner. But even as a prisoner, notice, again, he's not concentrating on his circumstances, but what he is saying is that I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for you. I have a measure of joy in my sufferings for you. He says, and I fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. It sounds very complicated, but what he is saying is that Christ Jesus is still being afflicted. He was afflicted when he hung on the cross and they nailed him to the cross. But even further than that, <clears throat> he's being persecuted. It goes back to Acts chapter 9. Remember in Acts 9 what the Lord said to Paul when he met him on the road to Damascus and he was going there to take some of these Christians and throw them into prison. And it says that uh, suddenly there shined around him in Acts 9.3 a light from heaven and then in Acts 9.4 he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you doing that to me? Why are you afflicting me? You see, Paul was persecuting Jesus Christ when he was persecuting the believers. And so Paul is saying that my suffering as a believer is really an affliction on the Christ. But I rejoice in being able to do this for you because I'm suffering so that you can come to the gospel. I'm suffering so that you can receive the Lord. Now, how many of us are willing to live unselfishly like that for somebody else? Willing to subject yourself for somebody else? Not many of us want to do that. In fact, it tells us in Romans chapter 5 that not many will, will die for anyone. And maybe for a good man, maybe, maybe someone, maybe a couple people. But most part, nobody is dying for anybody. Paul says, I'm dying daily. For you believers. I'm suffering for you, but I rejoice because you guys are coming to Christ. He says, in this thing, this church, this thing that God is doing, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And basically what he said, this is God's plan. And God has put me into his plan to be a steward, to be a servant for you, to fulfill God's word for you. To bring you to himself. And uh, he, he's like, I'm perfectly satisfied being used so you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, even in verse 26, the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now the word mystery, as we read here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 26, is a different meaning in the Greek language. So our New Testament is written in Greek, and then it was translated over for us into Latin, into English. And so we always go back to the Greek, to the original language, so we can get the full understanding, the thought of what the writer was trying to say. The word mystery in the Greek is not what we think of mysteries today. I remember there was a show that used to come on, Unsolved Mysteries. I used to hate that music because you hear the music, doo -doo -doo -doo, and I'm like, man, this is getting scary. Turn the lights on. You know, but it's always an unsolved mystery. Nobody knows. And there's never an answer. That's not this type of mystery. That's not what Paul is saying here. But this mystery is something that hasn't been revealed. It's something that is known by God, but hasn't been revealed just yet. And that it will be revealed. And he says, even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and generations, but now is revealed to his saints, to his hagias, his special people, his set-apart people. This mystery has been revealed. And he says, to whom God will make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here it is, which is Christ in you. That right there was something held so far back. You see, we have to understand this and, and put ourselves into the setting of the text. This was written 
<clears throat> back in the first century. This was written and understood by a Jewish believer, a, a believer that is now in Christ. And so you have to understand, with the Jewish people, they did not have this relationship with the Holy Spirit. They did not have this God living within you. The Jewish people, they, they realized that they were so sinful that they thought that they would die if God even came near them. You go back and read the book of Judges with Samson. Read in the beginning with his parents. When the Lord Jesus Christ, it says the angel of the Lord, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, it is the, the definite article, it is the Lord incarnate. When the Lord came to uh, Manoah and his wife, that was uh, Samson's parents, when he came to them, they thought when, when he went up in the flame and they realized that they saw him, they said, we're going to die. That's what Manoah said. I'm going to die. We saw the Lord. We were here in this company. I'm going to die. And his wife said, you're not going to die. If he, if he wanted to kill us, he would have killed us. He wouldn't have told us that Samson was coming. It was a whole different relationship and association for the Jewish believers. God is not living and dwelling within you. God is not being in close association with you. We're too much of a sinner. God will just snuff us out just like that. He can't be right next to us. It's clear. If you read through the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, uh, how many times the Lord was this close to just wiping out Israel because of us. This is what we do. They had the same type of heart that we have. Rebellious, stubborn. And so God, God couldn't do that. Remember, Genesis chapter 6. We went over this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Noah on Wednesdays. But Genesis chapter 6 uh, the Lord said in verse 3, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. He says, My spirit shall not always struggle with man. And so it was fitting that God, God cannot dwell in you and with you because we're just so opposite of him. And we're, we're just so stubborn. And these guys, <clears throat> they understood this. And so Paul says that this right here is the mystery. This is the riches that Jesus Christ is in you. We need to perceive the value of Christ being in us. Because naturally we're rebellious. Naturally we're stubborn. Naturally we're opposite of God. But yet he dwells within us. He is willing to dwell within us when we say yes to Jesus Christ. And that is something that is beautiful there for the believer. That Christ is in you, the hope of glory. This is how Paul can be unselfish in his living. It's because Christ is dwelling within him. This is how we can be unselfish in our living. When Christ is dwelling within you. Without that, that's not possible. You know, that is the separation between Christianity and other religions. Is that they're always trying to work to get something from God. They're, they're given what, needed, what needs to be done, but they're not given the power to do it. As a Christian, he tells us what needs to be done, and then he indwells us and gives us the power to do it. That is the difference between being in Christ, and being in all these other religions. It's not a work, works-based. It's Christ-based. It's Him dwelling in us. That is the blessing there. You know, that is, look, Christ in us represents the wealth and the will of the believer. Christ in us. It represents the wealth and the will of the believer. You are wealthy because the Lord of heaven dwells and resides in you. No other person, no other religion can say that. None of these other religions have that. Now, some of these religions, they say there's something dwelling within them, in me, but it's not the spirit of Christ. It's some other spirit. But this is the only way of life in which God indwells the believer. It tells us in the book of John, chapter 14, It says first in verse 17 of John 14, 
Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit taking up home, residence in our hearts. And if you skip down to verse 23 of John chapter 14, is Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Uh, there was a little small book that I remember having and reading a long time ago called My Heart, Christ's Home. And that is a book that talks about Jesus Christ residing within your heart. When you come to the Lord and you repent of your sins and you accept his free gift of salvation and what he has for you, he now indwells you. He lives within you. He takes up residence in your heart. He is now in you and you have become wealthy because the God of heaven lives within you. That is great worth there. You now have God directing your heart, directing your thoughts, your ambitions. And you don't have to be led by your own desires and your own flesh anymore. You even have God giving you the will to obey, working within you the will to do. We read that in the book of Philippians as we studied it, that it is God working within you uh, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. It is God working within you to do these things. That, gosh, that is of immense value. We don't have to try to do stuff. You know, it's hard for me to read the Bible. You know, I can't really read it. You know, I'm just tired. Every time I pick it up, my eyelids get heavy. You don't have to work on your own strength. You can pray, Lord, help me. To be faithful. Lord, I want to spend time with you every single day. Help me to get up early and do that. And God will do that. He'll just wake you up. Like, man, why am I up at 4 o'clock in the morning? Because you asked to be woken up so you could spend time with him. And you're like, oh, man, I don't want to read right now. I just want to go back to sleep. Well, you, you don't want what God wants for you then. He'll give you that opportunity. I remember one time I was sleeping in the bed. And I, I was, I had committed myself to pray about something, you know, for at least a month. And, and I would get up super early just to pray for this before I did anything. And I remember one day I was just sleeping and I just, honestly, I just felt something hit my, hit my foot. And I just kind of woke, woke up on my sleep and I'm looking around. I'm like, did Kenita just hit me? But she's in the third heaven snoring. She's gone. And I'm like, is somebody out there? Like what? The house is quiet. And then the first thing that popped in my mind was, you're going to be praying for this thing. I'm like, did the Lord just tap me like how he did? Elijah, when he was asleep, just tapped him underneath the tree. Hey, eat that food over there. You know, God will, God will do the things that we ask. It's not in us to do these, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to will myself to do it. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to set. No, it's, Lord, can you help me? Help me to do this. And he gives us the will. This is the wealth and the will of the believer that Christ is in you. Jesus Christ is residing inside of you. If you have accepted him, if you have turned from your sins, if you have received his free gift, he is indwelling you. And we need to perceive that value. It is worth a whole lot. And the Colossian believers, it would have meant a whole lot to them as well. Some of the things that they were suffering with and dealing with in this church and all around this church was angel worship and uh, Gnosticism and all these people that say they got this secret revelation and, you know, you need to worship all these angelic beings. And here he says that the God of the universe is actually living within you. You don't have to worship these angels. You have the God of the universe residing within you. You have now the capacity to receive his thoughts, his mind state, his leading. That is of immense value. And we need to see this as Christians today. This is a fixed position also. When he says Christ is in you, this is not shifting and shadow and, and turning and all these other things, variableness. This is a fixed position. That means it's not going to change. 
As you're a believer, he lives, he dwells, he made a home inside of you. Now you got to ask yourself the question, have you locked him in a closet in your heart? Have you said, Lord, you can have access to these four compartments, but this one, you can't, you know, this is just for me. That's what you got to ask yourself. Does he have, does he have full authority over your home, which is your heart? Can he tell you, I don't want you to do that. And will you listen to that? Can he say, I want you to do this right here. Will you heed the words that he is saying to you? Those are the questions that we have. That, that We need to perceive the value, but we also have to appreciate it. That Christ is in you. So Paul finishes up here in chapter 1 and says, This is the Christ, he says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You so here you perceive the value of Christ working through you. Paul is showing like, hey, look, this is why we're doing everything because Christ is in us. Now Christ is working through us because Christ is in us. Christ can flow through us. And now we have this desire to build everyone up, every man that we come across to impart this wisdom. He says, preaching to every man, warning every man. That word warn there is where we could get our English word counseling from counseling people to make the decision that's what counseling really is counseling is not telling people what to do counseling is presenting the facts about the the person and counseling is presenting the facts about the situation and leaving the person with the thought of what decision are you going to make that's what good counseling is it's not just telling people what to do because then you become the authority and then when it goes wrong is is all wrong with you as well. And so he talks about, he says, warning every man. They're going to have to make a decision, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. That is the word teleos, and that is the word complete, mature, full grown. I love how the apostle here, he's not just interested in evangelism and just bringing in the number of feet, but he wants to see people growing. And gang, this is what we have to be about. We, we have to be about maturity. It's not about just coming to Christ and just saying that we're in Christ. Are you maturing in the Lord? That's the question. Are you maturing? Or are you still immature in Christ? Maturing in the Lord is not having all the verses down. And you can spit off all the verses. That's not mature maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ is application. It's practicing what you read, what you believe. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 5. It tells us that. That is real maturity. That is the meat of the, of the matter. Milk is just knowing the stuff but doing nothing with it. And have to keep going back to the same thing over and over again. Meat is maturity. That's putting it into practice. That's doing it. And this is what Paul was so focused on. It was application. Gang, you got to be concentrated on this. Application in your life. Let us not sit in church and service every week and we read the scriptures and have the truth of God. But yet we're not practicing it. And it's all for nothing. We, we, we're wasting our time. There would be no reason for you to come then. If you're not going to put it into practice, you have to put it into practice. You have to apply so that you can grow and become full grown so that you can be immovable, steadfast, settled, grounded. It comes to the practice. And this is what Paul is concentrating. That's why he's, so, he's telling the Colossian believers this right here. We want every man to be full grown. We're not just satisfied with coming to Christ. We want you to be mature. And he says, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his energy, his working, which works in me mightily. Paul says we are agonizing. The Christ is working through us, and it is showing we're agonizing. This is a sports word. It's a word that is used for those who are agonizing for the prize. They throw in all of themselves in it so that they can get the results that they want. Paul says we are agonizing for this through his energy, not our own, which is working in us 
mightily, dynamically, with power. And so, perceiving the value of Christ for us, what he has done for us, but still, what is our responsibility? And we have to continue. We have to persevere in the faith, and we need to be grounded, settled. But also, perceiving the value of Christ in you. The Lord Jesus now dwells within you, believer. Don't quench him. Don't grieve him. Yield to him. Listen to him. Let him lead you. Let him speak to you. And then, perceiving the value of Christ working through you. We too can be like Paul, having this mindset that we also want to be uh, laboring so that people can come to full-grown maturity, agonizing, throwing ourselves into the the task that he gives to us, striving for the mastery, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 9, striving for the mastery. You want to win the prize, agonizing for it. Not putting in little effort, but a full effort. We need to perceive the value of what we have. Be edified and provoked to action this upcoming week as we have examined the importance of perceiving the value of Christ for us, in us, and through us. You can visit our website for our sermon archive at ccvaldosta.weebly.com. You can also keep up to date with us on Twitter at cc underscore Valdosta, or you can reach us by phone at 301-395-3382. And now we'll close in prayer. Let's say a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for uh, this word. And I thank you for the challenge that you give us, Lord, to be growing and maturity and to recognize the value of knowing you of what we have here this is not something to be taken lightly and so i pray that you would help us in every step that we take as we leave from this place it would be thoughtful every step would be intentional and it, it would be will be mindful of the living christ living within us thank you for that rich a rich blessing and that we no longer have to strive for anything just submit and trust so we love you lord and we ask that you would help us in jesus name amen